This has been Suttles with Disrupt Equity. If you're looking to learn about recession-proof real estate, I want you to listen to my friend Sam Newell's podcast because he's got a lot of values. He's, he's bringing a lot of good guests on there, and he's going to teach you a lot of things about what happens when the recession does come and how to recession-proof your real estate portfolio. Welcome to the Recession-Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. Well, tell me this. So I've had a couple people approach me about raising money. I haven't done it yet because I've waited, kind of just watch how different people operate, yep. who, rate, who they have raised money for them. Well, let's take Powell's deal, to, for example. How do you how do you see what Powell's doing? Cause he's doing a fund of a fund, right? Yeah, he's doing it. He's doing it that, that way. And then the other thing too, is we had a conversation with him on Monday. Ultimately my agreement is with Powell and Juan, Juan being WON, which is his business partner. Right. You know, and I say, you know, we expect participation above and beyond a capital raise. We're not going to plug a number to it. We're not going to say, Oh, for, 1.5 million, I'm going to give you 3% of the GP or whatever it might be. Right. I don't know. Right. Right. right? You're our co-sponsor. You're a partner on the deal. These are the things that we expect of you, you know, and so like what kind of things do you feel like obviously has to be other than raising money. It's worth bringing on a, a Powell and let's just throw arbitrary numbers. Let's just say, let's say I wanted to do, do the same thing as Powell. Um, let's say I, I think I can raise 2 million for the deal. Yeah. What else can I help with and do to be part of that GP? Yeah. I mean, it has to be, it, it can't be, and he brought up another good point, right? Which was like the guy was, you know, doing something minimal and then he brought $2 million to the table. Right. So there has to be, but once again, it's a gray area. So we have to, we have to really kind of dissect the process and the roles and the responsibilities and say, okay, you know, if this person probably can bring 2 million, what can they do that's a significant part of the process beyond the two million yeah. that can you know that we can legitimately say with a straight face and you know without lying, hey, this this guy or this gal is doing these other three functions and these are integral parts of the process. Yeah, and you know I was talking to somebody about this the other night, right? So there's there's a there's different ways that you can dissect the deal, right? From pre-close to the closing process to post-close, right? There's three different stages of a deal, right? right. And people can chime in anywhere, any part of this process, right? You know, from, you know, bird dog and deals looking, you know, work like say, for example, somebody brings me a deal. That's worth something. You know that's worth saying? the most like, right now. <laughs> I mean, like that's huge, right? You know I mean? So, you know, they, you bring me a deal, man, and that's a deal that, that's worth part of the GP. Now, how much of that is negotiable, right? Everything's negotiable, right? Yep. You know, but say this guy's chewing through a hundred deals a month. He's underwriting all these deals. He finds one golden nugget and he's like ben ferris i want to do this deal but i don't have the experience i don't have the wherewithal i don't have the capital raising skills whatever you know okay you know for us we're going to bring you know we're going to give you 10 percent of the gp or whatever it might be right mm -hmm. you know and uh you know for bringing the deal and you know we'll probably still assign other tasks to that person right you know okay you brought the deal but that ain't it right right, right. it's not gonna be like you're gonna you're going to dump a, a golden nugget on us and then we got to do all the hard work, right? You know, there's other things that have to happen, right? From once again, from pre-close to closing to post-close. And so you've got, you know, the underwriting, the finding of the deal, the due diligence and all the document, you know, um, you know, cause you have to go through piles and piles of documentation when it goes through due diligence, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, to putting up earnest money or at risk capital or fees or whatever it is, there's, you know, obviously earnest money is the biggest one of that, but there's application fees. There's, what do you, you guys know, usually do for earnest money? Sorry to interrupt. Um, you know, either we usually, what we do, we'll usually front end it, you know, because usually we're, we're moving quickly and it's just easier for us just to pay for it. But How we've had people take us out. Like Oliver took us out on Alamo, 
And, you know, but Oliver's also doing construction management for us. So, you know, he's one of our co-sponsors on the deal, you know, but he's, you know, he's got a line of credit that's two or 3 million with a construction company that he uses. And then he, he never really greens it up. So he's always got money. So got like, I'll take you out. So then that frees us up and our capital up to keep growing and putting more honors money over here and there. Right. Got it. That's on a case by case basis. You know, how um, much is the earnest money on this deal that you're working on? That was 150 K. Yeah. Right. You know, but we've, I mean, we've done deals where it was 250 K. Yeah. Oh, you know? and then sometimes there's like a, there's a, a there's another, stage right where it's 250 up front and then there's another 150 after due diligence right so you're in at 400k yeah absolutely um, the syndicator so, here in salt lake does a million refundable after one week yeah i mean that's, that's but he, if he makes an offer he knows he's gonna buy it yeah i mean that's that's really ultimate we've already done a ton of due diligence up front right yeah. so there's there's it's a very slim chance the only thing that's really gonna blow up the deal is like they were fraudulently you know trying to you know cover up something yeah or there's just systematic plumbing foundation or issues that we couldn't see during our initial property tours right diligence you know that would completely blow up the deal like say for example you got a two million dollars in foundation problems and you absolutely have to fix them well guess what my whole entire budget was a million. Right, right, right. <laughs> that one thing that's $2 million, that doesn't make any sense. So I'd you know, obviously back out of there. Sure. You know, but, you know, so that, but ultimately that's, you know, that's a lot of it's on us too. So we usually get through kind of that, that upfront process too, mm -hmm. you know, where we're, where we feel confident, okay, we're ready, we're ready to rock. And then sometimes somebody will take us out, you know, with the earnest money. And, but that offers, that's, that's, that's an opportunity cost for us for, so that, yeah. that odd, that adds a lot of value. Yeah. So, sure. you know, we've got that, you know, um, there's, there's other things, right? So what am I, what am I missing? So you've got underwriting, looking for a deal, bringing a deal. You've got the whole due diligence process from walking units to reviewing documents. You've got putting up earnest money, putting up the other fees and all the ancillary costs that you have involved in, in taking down a deal, you know, cause some of the bank fees can be, you know, 30, 50 grand, you sure. know, then you're going to have stuff to due diligence, like scope and plumbing lines. Like that ain't free. Yeah. Pay somebody to do that. that might be another 5k, right? Yep. You know, on top of maybe something else. So you might be in it for another 50, 60,000 bucks, you know, yeah. and that's tied up until you close if you ever do. Right. There's, you know, yeah, because, you know, so what about, um, investor relations? How much time money do you guys spend on doing webinars, educating the people that have committed money? So that's another thing too, you know, so you get through the due diligence. I'm kind of almost kind of going in a, in a, in a sequence here. So you get through due diligence, you review all your documents. Okay. I'm ready to rock. You know, somebody's already put up the earnest money, you know, now you need some KPs too, right? You know I mean? Now, you know, as, as we build our net worth that that becomes less and less of an issue uh -huh. but on a bigger loan, right? It, it's always nice. The bank always likes to have, you know, really only like three or four guys or gals mm -hmm. you know, versus 15. And what do you see the, the loan amount versus K KPs, liquidity, net worth, all that? What, what are you seeing required right now? So right now it's, it's becoming a little bit more where, well, I'll get, so typically it's, you know, the, the net worth has to equal the loan amount, right? Right. And usually in terms of liquidity, so that's bank, that's money in the bank or stocks, right? Something that's easily turned into cash, Mm -hmm. self-directed IRAs or 401ks and that stuff. They don't, they don't look, oh, oh, and you know, real estate, they don't look at that as a liquid investment, right? Right. So all that has to add up to at least 10% of the loan amount as well. Got it. Right? Got so it. the loan amount's 10 million, right? You need to have a million dollars. Now the, the beauty of commercial real estate, right? Is once again, it's, it's a commute, it's a cumulative thing. So all right. the, you can add up to a million. It doesn't have to be, everybody has to have a million dollars in the bank. Right. Right. No, that's the, that's once again, the beauty of it. And, but on top of that, now the banks are asking for, they're putting up, they're, they're, they're putting up some, some barriers where they're saying, Hey, you got to have some skin in the game because a lot of people, what they were doing mm -hmm. is they were going through these programs, right? They were getting, they're bringing in everybody they could 
to get them into a loan and to prop up their own personal net worth and liquidity oh. and stuff. They weren't putting up any money. And then they were taking massive acquisition fees at the beginning. You know, they walk away with four or 500,000 bucks and they didn't put a dime into the deal. Now, Dude, that's been my biggest worry with half these people is they're chasing like, acquisition fees. Well, okay. So full disclosure, we take them to, but we also put money in, right? You know, so right. and that's fine. And it's, and it's above and beyond what we take as an acquisition fee. And I'm going to tell you why an acquisition fee is important. I, you know, I've done several deals without them. Uh-huh. I also invest passively. So I'm looking at it from both sides. I, I see both sides of this argument, right? You know, having done deals, look for deals, put deals together. I understand how much work is really goes into this. Right. Right. You know, a significant amount of work, right? I mean, I'm doing more work than the mortgage brokers doing. I'm doing more work than the real estate brokers doing and they're all getting paid two or 3%, you yeah. know, and I'm the one putting up all the money. Yeah. You know, so, you know, yeah. I mean, time's huge. You know, yeah, that's an opportunity cost, right? You know, I mean, and so, you know, I, I look at it like, Hey, are, you know, I'm aligned to, you know, with everybody else, you know, I want this to perform, you know, my promo and only, you know, there's hurdles, right? Like right. I only get paid if they get paid their prep and they're split first and then it goes to me. Right. Well, you know? And the, the thought I've always had is if I'm killing it, if I'm absolutely an expert professional at what I'm doing, I better be getting paid because that's the only incentive to be that professional. I mean, you're, if, you're a broker. If a, dude, I mean, L, yeah. If an LP doesn't want me to get paid, I don't want that LP because they're looking for someone cheap. Who's probably not going to do as good of a job. Yep. So, you know, it's like Grant Cardone. He can raise $400 million, take all the acquisition fees he wants, but he adds massive, massive value. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't have a problem with people taking acquisition fees. I have a problem with people not investing and also doing a mediocre job and just grabbing that acquisition fee. Yeah. And that's, and, and, and you'll see that that's, and so the banks have seen that, you know, this, this, this rise of the, the syndication model has been 10 years in the making and right. some people are taking advantage of it. And this is also probably goes back to our earlier part of the discussion, right? Which is this, the, the SEC, right? There's just, you know, people are getting wind that there's some shysty guys out there. Yeah. We're trying to do the business right, but not everybody is, you know, some right. people, blowing in town, they're structuring two or three deals, they're making a couple million bucks and then they're leaving everybody high and dry. Right. You know, yeah, I, I have an investor worth a lot of money. He's out of Southern California. And he said, he's like, Sam, I won't ever do a syndication again. He's like, I lost, I lost everything I put in. And I'm like, Oh, you know, that's, that's well, so frustrating. You know, it's, it's true, man. There's operators. There's some, there's some obviously risk, man. There's, yeah. and that's, that's stated in our PPM, right? I mean, there's, right ultimately you can lose your whole entire investment. Right. Right. But from an LP standpoint, that's what LP means, right? You're limited. That's your, that you're only limited to the amount of money that you put in too. Right. right. So they're not going to come after your house. They're not going to come after your this or that, you know, you put a hundred thousand dollars in, you better be prepared that you might lose that. Yeah. You know, we're doing everything that we can to mitigate risk through buying in the right markets, you know, with the right economic factors you know, we have insurance on all of our deals. We're leveraging it properly and, and responsibly. All these things go in, having enough cash on the side, right? We have a cash yep. reserve, right? Keeping that. What do you typically do cash reserves? Um, it's funny. I was just doing a Facebook live about underwriting and we were underwriting three deals last night, but what do you typically do cash reserves? Let's say it's a 200 door facility. You're paying Oh, I don't know, 15 million for it or so. Yep. I'm usually doing 5% of, so on top of what I've already, so say for example, let's just use it a round number, right? I'm, I'm raising 5 million bucks, right? I'm raising an additional 5% of that, you know, as kind of a cash reserve, you know, um, because, and I'm going to tell you why. I'll go back to my first deal. So we had a pretty healthy cash reserve, but the property flooded during Hurricane Harvey. And so Hurricane Harvey took out 33 units on a 92 unit property. We were down to like 60% occupancy, Jeez. you know, and the lender didn't give us any forbearance. So forbearance is essentially like, Hey, give me a month or two to get enough cash together to actually pay the note. Right. Right. You know, just push the, the interest on the back end. And they said, no. Wow. So, I mean, what were we going to do? Either we're coming out of our own pocket 
right? Or we're having to do the dreaded cash call or we have the money in the bank. Well, we had the, the foresight on that deal, which was, was performing very, very well to just be, you know, we only, we were only giving out about 80% of the actual returns that we could have given out. And the other 20% on top of the money that we had raised at the beginning was being set aside. Well, that helped us for six months to pay the note, to pay our bills. I mean, we probably could have still done a distribution if we really wanted to, but ultimately we didn't. We waited until we got the rehab done. Sure. You know, I mean, and that was, that's a month for the rehab is all. Yeah. Because I mean, we had, we, on top of the 33 units we had to bring on, we had to pretty much redo the whole entire property. We, we had to do the office, the clubhouse, the pool area, all the ACs, you know, uh, laundromats, all that stuff had to be redone. You know, what a lot of people don't know is Hurricane Harvey affected a lot of parts of Texas and there was a labor shortage. There was a material shortage, you know, I mean, sheetrock went, it was gone like that, right? Oh, yeah. Everybody yeah. knew sheetrock, right? And yeah. then and then all the labor went through the roof, if you could even get anybody. Luckily, we had some pretty good contacts, and our guy got on it pretty quick. But, you know, um, it could have been worse. So that's sure. – I always, I always use that as an example as to why you want to have some money because you just never know. There could be a natural disaster. You know, something could happen. And so yeah. – and so it's funny that you talk about that. That's the whole reason for this podcast that I'm launching and sending out to people is recession-proof real estate. Well, you had a mini six-month recession, yeah. and you guys were ready for it. Yeah, you know, um, I have investors. You know, I sold fifty million dollars in rental properties last year, and I would say ninety percent of my investors don't have two months mortgage payments set aside. And I started realizing that and I started calling people back being like, Hey, how much money do you have set aside? Oh, well, none. Why? <laughs> you know, they're just, they're spending their cash flow Like, like it's, it's just play money. So well, I love what you just of, said there. The rule of thumb on commercial, right? Is one or two months debt service and one or two months expenses. It really depends on the asset and where you're located at. Right. right. Do, you, do you do one or do you do two? I always look at it like this. If with that amount of buffer plus the additional reserves that we bring in on as part of the raise, mm -hmm. you burn through that, you've got bigger, more catastrophic problems on your hands, man. Either they're right. in depression, we're in World War Three, or something else is, is really <laughs> happening. I always tell people this too, right? You know, if you're having trouble, be the first one to call your bank. Don't let it drag on them right. have to chase you. Get ahead of it and work out some kind of a workout clause with them because, you know, they're going to appreciate that. Trust me. Sure. Now it might not be pretty. They might say no at first, but ultimately they don't want to take the property back. Trust me. Yeah, they don't want to own property. People think, well, there's some bridge debt, shady bridge guys that will do that. But the, the, you know, the dust lenders, the arbors, the hunts, the graystones of the world, the Doherty mortgages, those guys don't want to take the property back, man. They don't have the bandwidth to do that. So right something out they'll work out some kind of a you know a payment period that, that you can you can kind of work towards that you know will get you caught up so I always tell people do that too if you see that man six months out I'm gonna have a problem here mm -hmm. you know because whatever you got into it and you had to do more of a repositioning or there was more rehab or I don't know the market is tanking around you you know get ahead of it you know because if you don't and you're the last guy to call the lender the lenders get said tough luck yeah. You know, I'm trying to work out 50 other loans with the guys that actually reached out to me. And we're right. Now that's great advice. I, I love that. I need to, I need to get a gong or something in my office. Have you ever listened to uh, that podcast, respect the grind? <laughs> no, but you gotta listen to it, man. He is, I'm going to send it to you right now or I'll send it to you when we get done. So it's called respect the grind. And he's got this gong in his office. When someone says something profound, I, maybe I don't want to copy him, but the last few days recording these, I'm like, dang it, I need something because I want our listeners to snap to attention when something profound like that is said. And so reach out to the lender. Don't yeah. wait until you're behind yeah, and have be six proactive. months contingency. So, so I'm curious about your insurance company though. How did they work? Because one of the other deals that I sent some investors to, I didn't get paid on. I didn't raise money for it. I just sent investors to it just had a bunch of the roofing and ACs just blow apart in a windstorm and the insurance company I think they wanted a fifty thousand dollar well no they wanted to give twenty five thousand dollars for repairs so I, I've got a I've got a ton of experience on this man okay. so 
with the property that flooded during Hurricane Harvey, we once again, we had the foresight to have flood insurance. We were along the coast. We're here in Texas. Hurricanes happen. Flooding happens. Right. Everything that I have here along the coast in Texas have flood insurance on, even if it's not in a floodplain. Right. And I'm, I'm glad that I did because this wasn't in a floodplain and it still flooded. Wow. So ultimately, we had to go through the FEMA process, which you're dealing with the government. That can be very, very painful. So really what it is, is you call them up. I was, we were on the phone for like six hours because mm-hmm. everybody was calling them at the same time, right? You know, we got a very nice lady on the phone. She assigned a couple uh, of adjusters to us and they go out and they do an inspection, right? And because it's commercial property, they usually have two or three guys. It's not one guy that does it, right? And they'll assign certain buildings to certain guys. And so then we go out there along with our general contractor, we meet these people, right? And uh-huh. you know, we walk through all the things that are wrong and all the things that we need to fix, repair, replace. And uh, then they assign a number to it. Well, you know, you can either have uh, somebody that's very gracious, right? somebody that's not very gracious, but ultimately the adjusters get paid on the amount of money that they, they give out to. So you know, that's a little tidbit that a lot of people don't know. Yeah. You know, but you might have just a guy. I mean, they're there to save the company money, right? They're not well, they, there to save your day. Yeah, kind of. You know, they're also there to they're all, they're working on behalf of the insurance company too, right? Right. You know, so you know, it's 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 a little bit of a negotiation, right? You know, but as long as you can, you go in there and you can justify what you're going to do and how much it's going to cost. They'll usually take your your recommendations into consideration, right? Have you had to hire an outside this investor? Is, this is where I was going with it, right? Okay. You know, so if this hadn't gone the way that it did, ultimately they were extremely, they were, they were extremely helpful. They're very gracious. You know, they gave us the money that we needed. But if they hadn't, right, I would have. I, and we got approached by a lot of those guys. Those guys were like, like storm chasers rolling into town. Right, like, I bet. Like, how did you even get my phone number? And they were just like, oh, you know, I can get you more money. You know, hire me. Blah blah blah. But those guys are out there too, and they'll they'll independently. And then they work on your behalf, and then right. they'll do a little bit of a negotiation. But sometimes that can work against you, and you know, just like t- you know, protesting your taxes here in Texas. Like sometimes you just, hey man, they gave you a good they gave you a good appraisal. Don't don't yeah. try to don't try to milk Screw it for what you need. You know what's interesting on this Dallas deal? It was actually Robert's Robert and Rod's deal. Mm-hmm. So fifty thousand dollar deductible. The insurance company wanted to pay twenty five thousand. Robert flies out there, hires an outside adjuster. They end up getting a million mm-hmm. because the roofs were trashed. I mean, all everything had to be replaced, and and this company <laughs> uh, thought twenty five thousand would do the trick. And yeah, they're, so, sometimes they're just trying to throw an amount at you. Yeah. yeah, you know, so it pays to be experienced. Um, no, that's that's really good info. I, so I love that you've had this experience because I was telling uh, Michael Young. I think you met him at at. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was telling him, you know, I've, I've been studying syndication, studying, 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 just been a student of it for, for a while now. And the only thing I can't learn are these experiences. And and that's why I want to team up with a key, a couple of key partners over the next few years. You know, my goal is to have a billion dollars under management and I'm going to get there in 10 years, but not without a couple of key partners who have had these experiences are extremely conservative. Yep. You know, it's, it's easy to tell a difference between someone just trying to get deals done and someone with a long-term play in mind, but Hey, we didn't start the podcast off. Oh, I thought we were, I thought it was recording. It is recording, but, uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about you first. No worries, man. No worries. I, I like to talk a lot. So we'll, as you we'll jump see. back into this here in a sec, but no, that was really good value. I loved what we were talking about. SEC, you know, insurance companies, lenders, that's all good stuff. But tell me about Ben Suttles. Where were you in high school? What what are you thinking about being a syndicator? Are you thinking about being a fireman? I I wasn't. I didn't have the the foresight of some of the people that we know that are in their twenties doing this stuff. Man, um, I was all over the map. I, I grew up here in Houston. I went to military school um, for a few years. I went to New Mexico Military Institute. Oh, wow. I ultimately graduated from a place called Cypress Creek here in Houston, because uh, I wanted to come back and, and hang out with my friends and, and yeah. do that. You know, went to tech for a year, Texas Tech, which is in Lubbock, Texas, okay. which is actually close to the Mexico Military Institute. So I was very familiar with that whole part of the country. Got it. Um, I forgot why I didn't like that part of the country. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I ultimately moved from Lubbock to Austin um, after my first year at tech. 
and I was at uh, Austin Community College, you know, looking to, um, you know, try to get into UT because I wasn't, I wasn't the A student, man. I'll just admit it. You know, um, I was, you know, probably a solid B or C student just because, you know, I, I got pretty bored in school. Yeah. Yeah. That worked for a couple of years. I lived in Austin. I love Austin. Um, that probably be the only other place that I live in Texas, but I had a couple of buddies. How do you were, like Austin? Sorry to interrupt. How do you like Austin? I love Austin, man. Austin's, it's got a different vibe than, than most of Texas. I wouldn't consider myself liberal, but you know, I just like the fact that it's got some culture to it. Houston's very kind of, everybody work moves to Houston or Dallas for work, right. right? There's a lot of transplant people. There's a lot of people from the North and Hey, I'm, or a lot of people from the West coast, just I'm here to work. Right. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of culture there because everybody brings their own stuff. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's tough, but I still love Houston, but I like Austin as well for different reasons. And there's a lot of things that you can do outside. You know, me and my family, we love hiking. We love going to the lake. We love the rivers, you know, all that type of stuff. And there seems to be a lot more of that in that central Texas part of the country hmm. than, uh, than there is in Houston. And it's not as hot. It's still hot, but it's not as hot. A couple of my buddies, you know, kind of going back, this would have been, you know, maybe 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of my buddies were going out to LA. They were going to go strike it big, you know, in, in, in Hollywood, right? Nice. You know, so they were going to a, you know, a film school out there. You know, I was still kind of grasping at straws. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So ultimately, I moved out to LA with really not a plan. Other than, hey, I'm going to go to the same, the same film school because I, want, I like to write a minivan and once it's full, you take off. Yep. All right. So I could just get out of the taxi and walk. You don't know if you're going to be blocked or not. But on those occasions where we were blocked by defense forces, soldiers, I would just walk right through them and show them my passport and they would just say, thank you, sir. Uh, then I'd walk through that barrier, that roadblock, and on the other side, there would be another taxi. It would only be like 20 yards away. All right. And so the Palestinians cannot go through. And frequently I was going to universities. So you got university students who cannot get to their university classes. So you can shut down the university without shutting down the university. Yeah. And so if you control education, you control a a culture as well. And so all you have to do is shut down the roads and students can't get to the university. All right. But I can with my American passport. So never harassed. I've never felt in danger in the West Bank. I've felt in greater danger because of Israeli soldiers Interesting. that had a chip on their shoulder than ever Palestinians. What about the Temple Mount? Tell me about, I've, I've had friends go back and they had a tour guide that freaked them out, said that Muslims were targeting Americans. And then he got there and said, well, that wasn't really the case, but we were still super scared. So I'm kind of curious about the Temple Mount and, and kind of what happens with that. Yeah, so the Temple Mount is the center of three world religions, right? So a billion Christians, approximately a billion Muslims. And because of the Holocaust, Judaism is so much smaller, Mm -hmm. right? So it wasn't uh, that many years ago that the population of Israel, which is the largest population of Jews in one place, surpassed the population of Jews in New York City. Okay. All right. So, I mean, this is a, geographically speaking, Israel is incredibly small. It will fit in the state of California 14 times. Wow. It will fit in the state of Utah. Since we're in Utah, that's a user-friendly mm-hmm. example. Four yeah. or five times. Okay. You're talking to a Utah and a Californian. You can figure that out. It'd be similar to Arizona, Kentucky, right? You can fit several of these places. It's only about 80 miles wide on average and about 200 miles north to south. So okay. It's super tiny. Yeah. Anyway, so it's because it's so tiny, security matters because you can get from one side to the other really, really fast. And so remind me, I just talked myself right out of what the question was. Uh, Temple Mount and... Oh, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, in this super, super small place, you've got the the, the capital or the holiest place for three different religions. For Islam, it's that would be the third holiest site. All right. Okay. The other two are in Saudi Arabia. Mecca Is that the Dome of the Rock or... or... It is a mosque that's on the Temple Mount. And let me just kind of rephrase it. Mm -hmm. So in order to hit all of the different traditions and speak to all of them simultaneously, I refer to the Temple Mount, which if you said that to a Jew, they would totally get it. If you said it to a Christian, they would completely get that. Mm -hmm. Muslims also, as 
embrace the Old Testament. The story of Abraham and Isaac, they would, they believe that Abraham, you know, moves to sacrifice Ishmael, Isaac's brother, but still that site is incredibly holy. All okay. right. Muslims believe that Jewish, uh, Jesus is a mighty prophet, but not the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so it's got different meanings for Christians, Jews, and, and Islam. So on what I will refer to as the, as Haram al-Sharif. That would be the term that you would use to kind of catch everybody and Got just you know, acknowledge respectfully everyone. What that means is the holy sanctuary okay. in Arabic. All right. So on Haram Sharif, you've got the Dome of the Rock, which is incredibly significant. It's an eighth century building. It's about the most beautiful building on the earth. I mean, it's, it's got to be in the top 10. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. But about 150 yards to the south, of the Dome of the Rock is the third holiest place in Islam, and that is called Al-Aqsa Mosque. And this area, this two, 300 yard area is where Muhammad comes in a vision. He is taken from what we would call present day Saudi Arabia on a night vision, comes to Jerusalem, the Arabic name for Jerusalem is Al-Quds, and so it's a journey into the heavens and he's brought to Jerusalem and then he's taken back. And so that's what makes Jerusalem the third holiest city in Islam. Got it. So anybody who tells you that it is basically dangerous to go up on the on Haram al-Sharif is functioning out of a particular ideology that leans heavily against Muslims. Got it. All right. Now, there are occasions where going up there could be a little more tense than others. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the last time I was there, we went there on the day, on a day that commemorated Israel taking what Israel would refer to as the Temple Mount mm-hmm. uh, in the 67 War, which is one of the most famous moments in Israeli history, modern right. Israel's history. And so going up there on that day, a little dicier, but still no big deal. Nobody's in danger at all. Okay. And so somebody who tells you it's dangerous to go up there is functioning out of a particular ideology, that, and I would not trust them. It, it's funny that you say that because the particular individual that told me that, you know, I, I'm Republican, Libertarian, I, I don't know, I, I am conservative. He's, he's one of those extremists that makes us look bad. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> He, he's so, uh, the, the Christian redneck who says the racist things and makes me embarrassed to be re- conservative, you know? So it's funny that you say that because you hit it spot on. Well, when I take people there, I will kind of give them a heads up. Number one, you're going you're gonna to feel totally safe. You will feel safer in Israel and Palestine than you would feel in many American cities. Yep. Right. So for example, I mean, I have a good friend who is a medical doctor was in Detroit. And they will actually send medical doctors to places like Detroit for preparation for serving in areas of conflict in the world uh, because you're gonna get gunshot victims consistently. So you learn emergency medicine, triage, and then surgery to keep somebody alive as a result of of receiving a violent wound, right? Like a gunshot or a knifing. Uh, You would never experience anything like that. I can't say never, but again, I've been there approximately 30 times. I've never felt in danger. And so I'll just explain to them, you will be, you will be embarrassed at these fearful feelings that you've had. It will actually embarrass you. You'll walk out of there just saying, what was I so afraid of? Right. Then the other part of it that I'll explain to them is nobody is looking you in the eye and saying, do you think you'll get blown up dot, dot, dot by an Israeli Jew? Nobody is communicating that. So the very sentiment is, again, it's Islamophobic. Right. All right. Uh, Because most people don't even know that there are entire Christian cities. So Bethlehem is historically a Christian Palestinian village. Right. All right. And there, there are a handful of those. And these are people who have never left. And so this is a place, like when I go to Bethlehem, I always meet with a guy who actually speaks Aramaic. That's the language wow. that Jesus would have spoken right. 2,000 years ago. And again, he and his descendants, they've never left. The Jewish population, they come from Europe, primarily Europe and North Africa. 
Anyway, so yeah, it's an interesting place to go. Very, very interesting. What else you got? Well, geez, that was that was really informational and very interesting to me. So, so you studied. You were there in '88. You went to the Mountain of Olives for BYU Jerusalem to study. Met your wife Katie, who's awesome. You have seven kids. You came back and you started teaching religion, or what did you start doing? Yeah, I, I finished my university training, and then I never imagined, Sam, that I would go into education, ever. Wow. As an eighth grader, I wanted a degree, a particular degree that was education-related. But both my parents were teachers, and since they had a double income, we were comfortable, and we lived in a beautiful neighborhood. But we didn't have, like, fancy cars or anything like that. Yeah. And so... I imagined myself going into, you know, a university level, mm-hmm. university setting. I wanted to be a lawyer and then eventually teach at a law school. And so if you would have told me that I would be teaching in the largest private educational uh, organization in the state of Utah, I, I would have laughed. Okay. So <laughs> I either teach university students or high school students religion, text-based religion, right? I also teach as a professor and teach ethics courses at Utah Valley University, the largest university in Utah. Mm -hmm. And I also teach religion at Brigham University. That's right now. Which which courses do you teach at BYU? Which, by the way, was my favorite part of going to BYU is I took double the amount of religion courses you're supposed to because, again, I'm just nerdy and love, love learning about that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, because of the coronavirus, the university is shut down basically. Mm-hmm. But everything's gone online. So I'm teaching 10 classes online and it's like super busy. Jeez. So the class I taught this semester was Pearl of Great Price, which is a, another book of scripture that Joseph Smith instituted as part of his religious movement, now known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. And otherwise I'm teaching uh, the Book of Mormon uh-huh. this semester as well. And awesome. I teach ethics at the university, which is totally sec- or secular. Right, right. So I just never thought I would ever go into education. Um, well, I mean, you started, you, you were telling me when we, right before we jumped on that one of the really cool things that you were able to jump into was the Peace Accord in 1993, and that was part of your doctorate. So tell us a little bit about that. I, I, we kind of skipped over that, but tell us a little bit about that, because from there you went into teaching. So that was one part of your career that I, I think is really neat. Yeah, I, the Palestinian people, so my research just dies, kind of ties back to the Palestinians because that's who it had to do with. Palestinian people had not had autonomy over education for 500 years. So their education was either based in Jordanian curriculum and histories, Egyptian curriculum in the Gaza Strip, or within Israel proper, the... Israeli army controlled the curriculum. Got it. Actually, they controlled it all. For 500 years, from 1517 to 1917, though, it was all Turkish or the Ottoman Empire. Got it. And so the people in the, in the region, you had very, very, by comparison, very few Jews mm-hmm. in Palestine during those years. All right. They'd been scattered all over Europe and North Africa. Starting in the late 19th century and early 20th century, Jews start coming back to their homeland. That's how they would describe it, right? Right. And during that time, Palestinians and Israelis, or Jews rather, living in Ottoman Turkey, got along very, very well. So the conflict between Palestinians and Israelis is very new as in the last 60 years. Okay. Centuries and centuries and centuries. Uh, Jews and Palestinians lived side by side and collaborated and cooperated day in and day out. All right. Mm-hmm. And as a general thumb, your typical Palestinian, your typical Israeli would totally get along. All right. Just kind of get when you get into the more granular issues, that's when the, the real striking differences come. When you get right down to property. Right. Uh, the, you know, it, that matters. So, so it'd be like, it would be like Mexico coming and taking San Diego up to Santa Barbara okay. and saying, we used to have that. That used to be Mexico. Right. They could even come up to Utah. We used to have that. That used to be ours. And now we're taking it back. 
and then have the biggest superpower on the planet, which let's say it's not the United States, let's say it's Canada, saying, yeah, that's fine. Right. Okay, so Mexico gets it. And then the United, United Nations steps in and says, yeah, Mexico, sorry, Los Angeles, you are now a Mexican city. And, and everybody who owned property there, who was formerly a United States citizen, you no longer own that property. Right. And if the Mexican government wants to come in and take it, they can. So your ownership has been compromised. And that happened anyway, later? That was 1917 to 1948. And absolutely. I was going to say it kind of ended around 48, right? Well, yeah, that's the Ottoman Empire. Right. Um, but the Ottoman Empire, I'm sorry, ends in 1917. From 1970 to, four, to 1948, you have Great Britain. Mm -hmm. As a result of World War I, the Middle East was kind of carved up. And different nations took over different sections. But they were all Western Europeans. So France, Italy, England. All right. And so mm -hmm. there was a British mandate over Palestine. Then in 1948, the British pulled out. It was just too big of a hassle. And that created a vacuum where the modern state of Israel was created. So anyway, for 500 years, Ottoman Turks controlled education. For another 40 years, British controlled education. From 1948 to 1967, Jordan, Egypt, and Israel control education. And then in 1993, the door was opened up for Palestinians to create their own educational system. Wow. where they could celebrate their own nationalism. They could celebrate their own culture. Um, they could How many Palestinians are there? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. How many Palestinians are there approximately? You've got about 2 million in the West Bank. You've got about 1.5 to 1.8 million in the Gaza Strip. And then in Israel proper, you've got another probably 800,000. They are called Arab Israelis. Mm -hmm. All right. So economically, if you live in Israel and you're a Palestinian, you have Israeli citizenship, but it's definitely compromised. It's like citizenship with an asterisk. Got it. All right. So like mm -hmm. a, a, an Arab Israeli school is going to get between 50 and 70 percent of the funding that a neighboring Israeli school would receive. Oh, wow. OK. Taxation is different. It's all different. Anyway, economically speaking, the. The Palestinians living in the West Bank, where Jerusalem is, mm -hmm. are far more economically advantaged than those in the Gaza Strip. Far more. Gaza is one of the poorest places I've ever been in my life. So anyway, when that door opened up for them to create their own educational system, you had basically a divided nation mm -hmm. in that you've got those in Gaza. You've got Palestinians in the West Bank, and they can't travel back and forth. With my American passport, I can. Right. So I met with the leading educators and university presidents in the West Bank. Then I could travel to Gaza and do the same thing in Gaza. So at the time, there were about seven Palestinian universities. And so I was able to communicate between the two and collect data and then synthesize it all and basically create a Palestinian vision of education that then they could take forward wow. um, into a new era. And so my research, I think show it to you. Yeah, that's cool. I, I'm looking at a Wikipedia. <laughs> it says there's about 5 million Palestinians now. So, so that's 5 million people that didn't have their own education system. Correct. And you've got a lot of Palestinians in what we would call the diaspora. So you have a lot of Palestinians, for example, in Jordan. You've got a lot of Palestinians in certain parts of Africa. They were scattered. You've got lots of Palestinians in places like Egypt. Okay, so when you have two wars that bear down on a people, you've got to run for your life. And so you right. get out of town, right? So you've got uh, the largest Muslim population in the United States would be Dearborn, Michigan, as far as concentration is concerned. Right. Um, we now have a Palestinian congresswoman. Right. So that's unique territory. But anyway, that's the research I conduct, about 500 pages. This wow. went on to be used for a time. And since then, the borders have been closed. It's very difficult to get in and, and access research like that. And so there's still aspects of that that were published 23 years ago that are still usable. But that was used as, as a textbook at, at some universities for a, a while. And, but yeah, that's what I did. Cool. Is I created this comprehensive vision between 
two divided peoples in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So, so what I'm kind of gathering, and this is going to be a rudimentary understanding, but you have the Jews scattered, Palestinians scattered by wars, other nations giving land to certain groups. And um, that's basically the, the whole clash is in the last 50 to 80 years, land has been given to the Jews or the, the Israelis and, and taken from or given to Palestinians. And that's what most of the conflict is about. Yeah, and it's something that you and I just would not roll with at all. And you would then, once you figure out what happened, you would just step back with some sympathies for the Palestinian people that you never had before. Right. So when I take people there, they're just able to see it on the ground, all right? So as an example, I have a really good friend who, she's older. In 1948, the war was coming very, very close to their home in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so the dad took the family and they went down to Jericho, 17 miles away. Okay. And just stayed in a hotel. Just kind of wait out the storm, so to speak. Got it. But when they felt like it was safe to go back to Jerusalem, which is not that much time had passed, they went back to Jerusalem and the locks had been changed on their doors of their home. And she has literally never stepped into that home again. No since way. Since 1948. So Palestinians throughout the West Bank will have the keys to their homes that were taken in 1948 and 1967. Wow. And so Israel, as they emerged as a nation, created a law whereby if a property was vacant, they could occupy it and take it. Wow. Well, when you just scattered a huge population, like my friend, and she's only 17 miles away, yeah. but you find the house empty, and now you have the possibility to step in and just take it and occupy it. Yeah, that's gonna create some some stress, some long-term trauma that you would not get over quickly. You and I would never put up with that without resisting. Sure. The amazing thing about the Palestinians is that, again, 98% of the resisting is peaceful demonstration. Right. Right? Like maybe burning tires in the street or something like that. It's just not how we would do it here, but maybe it would be. Yeah, I Uh, I don't know. For any group, for any, it's always the radicals that make everyone look bad. It's my redneck friends who say the racist comments and uh, actually believe them that that makes the republicans and the the conservatives look bad it's the you know opposite side has the same and israelis and palestinians have the same issues well you know we're, we're about done with the podcast this has been so interesting and honestly i think in in a month or two we ought to do a part two because <laughs> this is really interesting and a, a really fun break from real estate we're in the middle of coronavirus. You have a number of townhomes. I have a number of townhomes. So far, I'm good on rent. You're, you told me yesterday your, your uh, renters have been paying. We'll see how May turns out. But you, know, you had your house pretty much paid off. You made the decision to invest. You're helping your kids invest. I'm just kind of curious what your take has been on owning investment properties if you're thinking you may own more in the future and, and any thoughts on investments, real estate, or just investing in, in general? Yeah. Well, I am not, I'm a liberal artist. And so money is just really not that big of a deal to me. Mm-hmm. However, with seven kids, our youngest has some pretty severe special needs. Right. And so you'll recall that when we sat down initially, one of my goals is to create two retirements. Because my retirement, just straight up from my profession, Katie and I will be totally comfortable. Right. But Bibi, our daughter with special needs, she will outlive us. She does not have special needs that would, you know, shorten her life at all. Right. And so I need to create a second retirement for her. That's where the real estate plays in. Yeah. And so I've always been... I, before I went to education, I worked with some real estate investing gurus. One's name was Robert or Bob Allen. He mm-hmm. was pretty famous back in the 80s. Yeah. So he was like the no money down guru. Mm-hmm. So I worked with his brother and a series of other investors and figured out, I made a lot of money, but figured out that money really isn't my motivator. It's just not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I need to create a second retirement, now I'm motivated. Okay. Yeah. 
So that's why I got into it. The timing was awesome. Your assistance and expertise was fantastic. And so if you're just talking about appreciation, dang. You're up quite a bit. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 in two and a half years. Yeah. Just an appreciation. Yeah. Well, so we hit it right at the right time. Then along comes the coronavirus, <laughs> which humbles you because that could strip us of everything in the blink of an eye. Yeah. We would be able to turn around and sell it all and still do really, really well. Right. But well, and, still rather unnerving given my goals. Yeah. And, and you've been extremely conservative. So I wanted to compliment you. There's, I work with, you know, I sold hundred and something homes in 2018. I've been selling less and less as I get into these bigger deals, doing huge multifamily deals across the country. But, but over the last 10 years, my investor and also my client profile has been pretty much the same. Uh, they're over leveraged. They have zero savings and they don't pay attention to the details and they don't listen to my advice. And I still sell them a home or I still sell them an investment property. And I do my very, very best. That's one reason I started to get out of selling investment properties and homes because I felt like people weren't making the right choices. One of the things I feel like, and, and coronavirus is a very, very good example of this is you should have six months of mortgage payments saved up for your own home and for your investment properties. And over the next probably year and, and I think 18 months, I think my investors will start to see that. And, and I, knew, I know you and Katie are so conservative with your money and so smart with it. I wish more of my investors and clients would, would be like you and, and pay attention and, and not be in a position where you know, you said you, you could get wiped out by, by coronavirus. Guess what? There's people already wiped out with one month of vacancy. And, and I know in actuality, we could help you figure some things out because you have so much equity. You could take out a HELOC and pay your mortgage and you'd be absolutely fine because I, I know your position you're in. But I have investors that have zero savings. They have, don't have equity. They paid way too much for the properties, more than I told them to pay. And it's frustrating. So, you know, you see in my background, recession proof, it's the whole reason I started this podcast was to help people be a little bit more like Blair and Katie and, and be conservative with their money and, and be in a position where you can create a retirement for yourself and feel comfortable that your kids and your family will be taken care of. And you can get through a coronavirus, you can get through a 2008 recession and that, that's all I really want to say on that, other than thank you for today. This was, man, I'm going to go back and listen to this right now as I work the rest of my day, because this is really educational and fun for me to learn about. Do you, who do you take on your trips to, to 